Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Lord, we're grateful that the, the word is truth and uh, you use it to minister to our hearts. And Lord, I do pray you would do just that. Not that these would be sort of words, yeah, that sounds nice, or words that sort of kind of float in and out, but they would dive down into the deep places of our hearts and really speak to us today. So draw us, Lord, to yourself, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we are in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the last chapter in a section of the book in which Solomon has been addressing his son. So you remember we talked about how Solomon is writing this letter, this book to his son. My son, hear these things. Don't make the same mistakes that I have made and so on. Chapter 9 will be the last chapter where he specifically addresses his son. So certainly the rest of the book is going to be helpful for his son as well. Um, But the rest of the book isn't directly directed to his son Uh, But here, as we are in Proverbs chapter 9, we see that for the last time he uh, will address his son in particular. And he's going to do something that he has done a number of times already, and that is he's going to draw a contrast between two things. So he's going to put two things out there for you to look at, for you to compare, you to contrast with one another, and then essentially say, now choose. Which one do you want? Do you want this one here or do you want that one there? And typically the, the choice is obvious when we sit down and we're reading it. It it doesn't always seem as obvious when we're faced with that choice in life. And that's why oftentimes we choose the way of folly as opposed to the way of wisdom. And that's what he's going to compare in chapter 9. He's going to compare this woman folly, or excuse me, this woman wisdom, as he has been writing about her, personified wisdom, obviously personified as a lady. He's going to write about her in verses 1 to 12. And then in verses 13 to 18, he's going to introduce a second woman in the chapter, and that is a woman, if you will, whose name would be Folly. And so we're going to compare and contrast wisdom and folly. And wisdom and folly, they're set up here in this chapter, I think the scripture does in other places as well, as rivals with one another. And so just as, if you will, Christ and sin are rivals, well, so are wisdom and folly rivals for the soul of man. And as we will see, both of them are making their appeals for man. Come on, turn aside, come my way, listen to the words I have to offer you, partake of my ways, wisdom and folly. And it's ever that way in, script, in Scripture. Wisdom and folly, righteousness and sin, good and evil, life and death. And you see again and again throughout the Scripture, there's these dichotomy of choices, these two opposite things that set themselves before you, that appeal to you. Come on, just embrace me, and you'll be happy that you did, and so on. And so when we look at the children of Israel and the narrative studies of Scripture, you look at the children of Israel, and when they received that law, they were preparing to enter into the promised land, the long-awaited promised land that took years, first off, 400 years or so uh, in promise to Abraham, but then 40 years of wandering there in the wilderness. Moses gives them the law, They're about to enter in. He's not going to go in with them. Joshua's going to lead them in, but they're about to enter in. And Moses pleased with them, choose life rather than death, he says. I'll read it to you. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and a curse. Therefore, choose life, he says, that you you and your offspring may live. You see the dichotomy of choices, life and death. Joshua said something similar. He instructed the people, he said, choose this day whom you will serve. Elijah the prophet told the people, stop limping between two different opinions. And of course, I'm sure we're all familiar, Jesus declared, no one can serve two masters. 
Jesus said, either you're going to hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. But you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve, in that case, both God and money. And I think our lives, in our lives, we are perpetually faced with two different choices, it seems, wherever we go. Sometimes there may be a whole plethora of choices, but it ultimately boils down to God's way and man's way. God's way and the other way. Which way are we going to go? And the repeated exhortation of Scripture, as you might expect, is to choose wisdom. It's to choose righteousness. It's to choose life. And so again, today, we have the option of choosing the way that leads to life, that's wisdom, and the way that leads to death, which here we are told is folly. And so let me read the opening 12 verses. This is wisdom speaking. She says this, Now wisdom has built herself a house, and she has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts, she has mixed her wine, she has also set up her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live, and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and whoever uh, he who he reproves a wicked man incurs inju- he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Verse seven says, "Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One." is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and your years will be and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. And so as we saw, you read it with me hopefully, the personified woman, this woman wisdom, she begins by building herself a home in verse one, slaughtering her beast and making ready the wine. That's in verse two. Verse 3, she sends forth the young women. They're the ones with the invitations to go get all the invitations out to the people. We see also in verse 1 that she has hewn her seven pillars. Now that, that expression, that phrase, that could be perhaps a reference in the New Testament. James chapter 3, it says, The wisdom from above, count with me, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. If you do the math, it's seven things that are there. So it could be a reference to these seven characteristics of wisdom, and so sort of speaking symbolically, or it just may simply be a reference to the ornamental way that the pillars would both strengthen and support the home. But either way, it's all a picture anyway. She's building this home, slaughtering the animals, having the drinks ready. Everything is there because she is preparing to have a feast. And she's going to invite, as it says, the simple. So she throws in a feast and she appeals to the simple that they would come and that they would partake. You see that there in verse 4. She says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks strength, uh, sense, she goes on and she says. And so she reaches out to the simple. And the, reaches, the reason why she reaches out to the simple is because the simple are the ones most in need of her wisdom. Jesus would say in the New Testament, in Mark and in other places, in three of the Gospels, he would say these words, or at least they're recorded. He would say that it is the sick that need a physician. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Those that are, who are healthy, they don't need to go to the doctor. I know in our days we're supposed to have well visits and things like that. Um, but 
none of us go. I don't go. I don't know about you. You know, I'm not going to pay $35 for that. I um, feel fine. But anyhow, we're supposed to. Um, but the normal order of things is if I'm not sick, I don't go to a doctor. And even so, those that are wise in their own eyes have no need to seek another person's wisdom. And so then wisdom doesn't call out to those people that are wise in their own eyes. She cries out to the simple, those that know that they don't know. And in the story she calls out, she says, Come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Now notice there, in her invitation, there is both a positive and there is a negative. So positively, she says, Come. Negatively, she says, leave your simple ways. Stop doing that, start doing this, positive and negative. And I think it's important for us, as we seek to be people that walk in wisdom, we need to realize that those who come are expected to both choose the path of wisdom and at the same time part company, if you will, with the ways of foolishness. You understand that? Okay, so we are to choose the path of wisdom, that's the positive, if you will, and at the same time choose to part company with those on the path of foolishness. And so she says both come and leave. Come and eat my bread, drink of my wine, leave, as it says there, your simple ways. Verse 7 goes on. Now, 7 and 8 seem a bit out of context. We're talking about a feast, we're talking about how she got it all prepared, she's talking about the invitation, and then it seems she sort of goes off here, and it says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, he will hate you, reprove a wise man, and he will love you. doesn't seem to be naturally connected with sort of the flow of what is going on here. And it seems as if the continuity is broken. Now, it's possible that Solomon's purpose in including this little phrase here in this woman's words, this personified woman's words, as he writes this little interlude is to, perhaps he's trying to explain why the invitation will not be sent to the scoffers. And so the invitation is going to go out, but it's not going to be to those that are going to reject it and aren't going to be interested in it. It's going to go to those that would receive it. Perhaps that is where Solomon is going. Or perhaps it's going to go out to whosoever will, but Solomon is anticipating that it will be rejected by certain people, by, as he calls them, the scorner or the scoffer in some of our versions. Either way, whatever his purpose for including these couple of verses in the middle of this word picture that he has created, whatever his purpose is for it, I think we can still learn the lesson that is being communicated through it. And so that's what we want to do. Again, whoever corrects a scoffer, a scorner, gets himself abuse. Abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. And then the instruction, do not reprove a scoffer. He'll hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. So I think there's a word of wisdom here for us, whether we are called to be the reprover in a situation, or the one that is being reproved. I think there are lessons that can be learned. I personally would much rather be a reprover of other people than to have people reprove me, but there's certainly a lesson for both of us here. So let's speak first about the one that has to be doing the reproof. And so you have the opportunity to speak into a person's life, a word of correction of some sort. Solomon's advice to you is this, be careful in doing so. Be careful in doing so. So before you just jump in, he says, hey, remember this, whoever corrects a scoffer 
gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. And then he adds in verse 8, if you reprove a scoffer, he will hate you. And so Solomon's word of wisdom for the would-be reprover, and I don't know if that's a real word or not, um, but we're going to use it today as if it is. But Solomon's word of wisdom for the reprover is to take care in who you offer a reproof to. Take care in who you, you know, writing that down? Take care in who you offer a reproof to. There are people that you should not bother, and I'll, let me emphasize the word you, should not bother giving a reproof to. I believe you have to earn the right to reprove another person. Earn the right to be able to speak into that other person's life. And so each of us, you know, it's not your mission, Don. It's not one person's mission to reprove everybody on the earth. Okay, some people think it is. All right, but you earn the right to speak into certain people's life. And if, let's say, you've earned the right to speak into a person's life, and so now you're going to say a word in doing so, how should you approach that? You should approach it carefully. Jesus would tell us in the New Testament, first, guard your own heart. Search out your own heart. Make sure there's no sin in your own life related to that particular area so that you're not a hypocrite when you go and you approach that particular person. Jesus said, or I think it's Paul, somebody in the New Testament said that we should approach with humility, not in pride, lest we be drawn away by the same sin as well. So the first lesson there, or maybe it's the second now, but the first lesson is be careful how you go and approach. Don't just go spouting off reproof at it, everybody. And secondly, approach in humility. Now Jesus also said this, because we know not everyone is willing to receive a reproof. Jesus said in Matthew 7, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So be careful. Be wise in the reproof that you bring. Now this isn't to say that we should never reprove someone just because we suspect, well, you know, they're not going to listen so I'm not going to bother. The Lord may lay it on your heart. Go talk to the guy. That's your brother in the faith. That's your sister in the faith. You love them, don't you? Well, oftentimes God doesn't speak through the clouds, but he uses a brother, he uses a sister to come and to speak a word of wisdom into a person's life. And so this isn't to imply that, well, I don't know how they're going to accept it, so I won't say anything. Pray about it. Seek the Lord. If he continues to lead you in humility, go speak to that particular person. But know what you're getting yourself into and be prepared for the possible response that you might receive. So that's some word of wisdom there for the person that has to go and bring a reproof. This verse also teaches us if we are on the end of having to receive a rebuke of some sorts or reproof of some sorts, somebody brings something to our attention, how should we receive it? So notice again, I'll read it. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. You don't want to be a wicked man or woman, do you? Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Amen, sister. Right? You don't want to be labeled as a scoffer. Okay? So learn the lesson. This is what those people do. Don't do that, is what he's saying here. Do not, it says, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Don't hate somebody because they come and bring a word of criticism or critique in your life. It says, reprove a wise man and he will love you. How should you respond if somebody reproves you? You should love that person that they went out of their way to speak into your life. Now see, I don't stop everybody on the street because I don't really, it sounds terrible, I don't care about everybody on the street. You say, I do, I'm a Christian, you know what I mean? And, but I, I don't necessarily care about everybody on the street. 
I invest myself into those I really care about. And so I will speak a word into my children's life or into people that I love's life and you, you guys and so on because I love you guys and we want good for each other. But the random person on the street, not necessarily so. So when a person will invest to actually take the chance and come reprove me, I should respond by saying, wow, they really love me by doing that and I should love them in return. So again, how do you respond if someone corrects you? You should respond with humility. A wise individual receives the correction and notice loves the one that brought the correction. And they do so because they know that the correction was for their good. And that's why we appreciate the person. We love the person. We respect the person perhaps a little more because we know that, you know what, they brought that for my good and for my benefit. Now, of course, not everything somebody comes and brings to you is going, may necessarily be right. And some people may have their own ideas and they may bring it to you. And what do you do with that? You pray about it. You say, Lord, is there any truth in there? Is there just a, a twinge of tr- truth in there that I can take out of this? Uh, and so on. And the correction, it's going to sting a little. But there's a proverb that we'll get to in, I don't know, eight, six weeks, six months or something like that. Proverbs chapter 27, it says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A real friend, a real brother or sister in the faith is going to take the chance to say something that may hurt you a little bit now, but will help you in the long run. And so we remind ourselves of that truth. Even though the correction may sting a little bit right now, I know that this friend loves me, and that's why they took the chance to speak that into my life. Now, if you look at verse 9, it says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. For the person that sees themselves as simple they know that they need to receive correction. And so thus, they embrace correction. And if you notice that, they see themselves as simple, yet their actions mark them as wise. And so I look at my own life and I say, boy, i got a whole lot to learn. But the fact that I sit down and start to learn it shows that I'm actually pretty wise. Does that make sense? And so the person sees themselves as simple, But their actions define them as a person that is wise. They're open to receiving instruction because they're willing to learn. And it's when we begin to see ourselves as too wise to be corrected and too wise to have to learn anymore, that's when we stop learning. And we're not advancing anymore in our walk of wisdom. It's the wise man, the wise woman that continues to grow in wisdom. Now, if you go to this banquet feast, remember the banquet feast story? The lady calling out, hey, you come to my banquet feast. I have it all prepared. You should come. If you decide to go to that, ba- that banquet feast, if you decide to walk in the way of wisdom, to embrace wisdom as the lifestyle, the, the type of person you want to be, then you need to know that along the way of that walk, somewhere at that feast, a part of that walk, a part of that feast is going to be criticism and critique of who you are as a person. How's that feel? All right? That's just the way it is. A part of that, I, I heard one guy kind of compare it to this. If, if you were going to get a college degree in wisdom, then a required course of that program would be criticism of our actions and thoughts. So if you want to walk in the way of wisdom, you're going to be critiqued along the way by God's Holy Spirit, 
by others that love you and that are mentoring you and so on. Because remember, if we are simple, then that means we got a lot to learn. And our ways and our thinking and our actions and all those things need to be refined. And so we're going to be critiqued. And a wise man or woman appreciates the refining of those ways that criticism can bring. A fool, on the other hand, resents it. Can't believe you said that to me. Resists it. I don't want to hear it. Rebels against it. I'll do whatever I will. I'll show him. I'll show her. That's a fool. So the way of wisdom, the wise man receives criticism. The fool rebels against it. And again, instead of resenting criticism, a wise man or a woman takes it to heart. And thus, as it says in verse 9, they become even wiser still. So then the rule for receiving a reproof is to be more concerned to get the benefit of the reproof than to protect your wounded pride. And oftentimes that's how we respond. Well, who are you to tell me? I've been a Christian a whole lot longer than you. I'm your father. How dare you reprove me? You know, these kinds of things. We, we, our pride is wounded, and so we shut the walls up so that they can't hurt us anymore. But again, the reality is that little bit of hurt, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Amen? All right. Verse 10 continues. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now Solomon's told us this before, that the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. Here we have a similar idea. Phrase is added. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It's been said a person that knows the Holy One, that's Solomon's word, can see more in his knees than others can see on their tiptoes. And the idea there being that, that as a person seeks God, and again, not just God's ways. And I think that's what happens a lot of times as Christians. We seek God's ways, but we don't seek God. And so then our relationship with God, God becomes so distant, but I know all the rules, and I know all the things that I should do. And then what happens is we have this dry, stale relationship with God because it's really not a relationship with Him. It's with His book or, or something like that. So to go back to that idea here, the idea is that as a person seeks God himself, wisdom and insight will be theirs as well. And as they submit themselves to God, as they submit themselves to the one that they have come to know, they're going to build a life of obedience to God and to his commands. Thus, knowledge of the Holy One is the beginning of wisdom. Does that make sense? As you know him, you'll love him. As you love him, you will obey him. And as you obey him, you'll build a life for yourself of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is the beginning of wisdom. Verse 11, for by me your days will be multiplied and your years will, and years will be added to your life. This is not the first time Solomon has said this phrase or something like it in the book. And again, the general rule is that a life of wisdom is likely to provide a person not only with a long life, but with a good productive life as well. And a person that lives a life of wisdom, they're not only going to see likely the day, span of their days lengthened, but the quality of their days will be increased as well because they'll be walking in that wisdom. Verse 12, if you're wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Remember he talked about the scoffer. It's for your own benefit to be wise and to walk in God's wisdom. It's for your own benefit to do so. More than anyone else, the person that benefits is the person that they themselves are wise. And on the other hand, if a person chooses to scoff at words of wisdom and reject a life of wisdom, other people are going to be hurt along the way. 
but more than anyone, you're the one that's going to suffer the penalty of that decision. And so again, if you're wise, it's for your own benefit. You're wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you alone will bear the consequences of that decision. And so Solomon begins by speaking if he, uh, from the perspective of this woman wisdom. As we move to verse 13, Solomon is going to speak from the perspective of the woman folly. And as I said in the beginning, you have these two opposing ideas, opposing ideas, one with the other, sort of each of them trying to appeal, get people to buy their particular product. And so here in verse 13, we come to the woman folly. And as you're going to see, I'll read through the verses. But she sets herself up in the busy thoroughfares. She begins to cry out to the masses, come on, participate in my ways. Folly will be, we'll see, wisdom's great rival. And it's, I find it interesting as you go back and you kind of compare both standing in the same thoroughfares, both calling out to whosoever will, come, come on, come. And here we have foolishness personified, folly. But I think she could also represent more than just foolishness. Ultimately, she is wickedness personified. She's all that is opposite to God and His ways. Anything that is opposed to God and his ways. That is what folly is. And so here she is. She stands as the chief rival of wisdom. She cries out, we'll see. She hopes to entice, seduce people. She seeks to lure many, and we'll see to their death. So let's take a look. Let me read through. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive, and she knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town. She calls to those who pass by who are going straight on their way, she says, verse 16, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Somebody has said this, those who reject wisdom's feast are prime prospects for follies fast. And that's what we have going on here. Prime prospects for follies fast. Notice a couple of comparisons things that are similar between wisdom and folly. In verse 3 and verse 15, we see, you can look at it in your Bibles, that both are out amongst the public and that they're calling to would-be suitors. So that's a comparison. Both of them are out there. We see in verse 3 and verse 14, both have situated themselves in the high places of town for the purpose, no doubt, of ensuring that people would be able to hear their message. We see in verse 4 and verse 16, both are making their appeal to the simple. Again, those that need to know. Both are making their appeal to the simple. Come, enjoy, partake. And so you have all these similarities between the two, but you have a number of contrasts as well. So first, while wisdom has set up this elegant meal in this palatial palace, folly, on the other hand, can only entice with the sin that she has to offer. And while wisdom offers length of days in verse 11, folly's ultimate reward, that which she alter, offers, verse 18, is death and the depths of Sheol. But she's never going to tell you that. But nonetheless, that's what she offers. And so we have things that we can compare them, but things that we can contrast them. And really, what is folly? Folly is a counterfeit. And so you get a counterfeit bill. I sat on a court case once of a poor lady. She went to... Um, Popeyes, I think, a chicken place up the road here. And she paid with a high bill and they gave her cash back. And the cash back turned out to be a counter counterfeit bills. 
a bunch of $20 bills. And so she went somewhere else, passed the $20 bills that she took out of her wallet, and now she passed counterfeit money, and she got arrested for passing counterfeit money, and then we had to go through this whole process of uh, finding out whether she did it on purpose or she was innocent or guilty and so on. Good news? She was innocent. She didn't know, you know, poor lady. And you know how they found out? They, they said, well, where'd you get the money that you passed around? She said, well, I was at the Popeye's and I, I got my check and I went to Popeye's and I got some dinner and then I went to the mall. And as soon as she said Popeye's, the, the prosecutor said, oh, all right. They're known for that. It's like, so don't go to Popeye's, I guess. I'm sorry if you like, but if you work there, I apologize. You know where you should go? Chick-fil-A, Flemington. Drive up there, you know, find people that work there. Uh, but anyway, so it looked like money. It had a little number in the corner. It had the little red numbers and all that. It, it was green and things like that. It looked like money. It had been compared in many ways, but folly is a counterfeit of wisdom. It will look like wisdom. It will seemingly offer wisdom. But as you dig in deep, you begin to see that that initial similarity with wisdom, when you look more closely, you'll discover that folly is indeed worthless. And so let's do that. Let's dig in a little deeper here and look at this woman, Folly. In verse 13, we discover that Folly is loud, she is seductive, and she knows nothing. The verse says, a woman folly is loud, she is seductive, and she knows nothing. There you go. She will never, I think that's my word, she will never be able to convince a person of the merits of her argument because she knows nothing. So how am I going to convince somebody else of the merits of my argument if I don't even know my argument? And so instead, what does she rely on? She relies on loud, boisterous behavior that would overpower a person, and she relies on her powers of seduction and sensual appeal. And she sets herself up at the door of her house. She goes to one of the high places of the town and she begins to cry out to those that are passing by. Now in the example Solomon gives, Folly, I should say, is a provocative woman. And she's this woman that's seeking to, to seduce simple men. That's the example that Solomon gives. But Folly can be anything. And so I think it's important that you don't read this and you're like, well, I don't have a problem with sensual women trying to you know, call out to me, so I guess I'm good here. Now, folly can be anything. And so it's not just limited to a seductive woman and a foolish man. Folly can be wasting time. No amens on that one. Folly can be wasting time when work needs to be done. Folly can be taking the easy route. Not so legal, but it's the easy route instead of the straight and narrow. Folly can be the decision, you know what, I'm just going to break off that relationship at the first sign of trouble, rather than digging in and doing the hard work that is necessary to work through the problems that relationships nevertheless are going to have. You see, so folly can be any of those things. Folly is anything that appeals to the immediate satisfaction of the flesh instead of the long-term satisfaction of your heart and the Lord's. That's what folly represents here. So don't get caught up in the specific example that Solomon gives. Folly is anything that appeals to the immediate satisfaction of the flesh. And we see here in verse 15 that folly calls out to those who are going straight on the way. In the past weeks, I've said this. I've said that there are paths of righteousness and there are paths of wickedness. And I, I've given the exhortation, I believe Solomon gave the exhortation, that one of the best ways to keep yourself from the paths of wickedness 
is to never go down the paths of wickedness, right? We've said that. And so if you're on the way of righteousness, then you're probably going to be walking in righteousness and you're not going to be caught up in some of the things that are there. I don't think that's rocket science. It just sort of makes sense. But what's important for us to note is sometimes wickedness comes to us. And so we're not walking down the paths of wickedness, but sometimes wickedness comes to us. Have you found that experience? You're walking in the straight and narrow. It says in verse 15, who's she calling out to? Those who are going straight on the way, doing what they're supposed to be doing, kind of walking where they're supposed to be walking. And all of a sudden, hey, big boy, wisdom comes along and speaks in. It's a little weird to say uh, here. And so certainly we save ourselves a lot of temptation and struggle by simply being careful of the circumstances that we put ourselves into. But again, sometimes wickedness comes and it finds us. And so again, we see here this person in the account, she wasn't out looking, or he wasn't out looking for folly. Again, verse 15, going straight on the way, but folly was looking for him. I'm reminded of the serpent in the Garden of Eden and comes and finds Eve and begins to entice Eve. I'm reminded of the Apostle Peter's words that say, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Seeking someone to devour, anyone to devour. So you may be doing great spiritually, and I hope you are. And you may be humming along in your walk with the Lord and you've been sticking to the so-called straight and narrow. Here's the word of exhortation. Do not let down your guard. I'm doing great. Everything is wonderful. I'm meeting with the Lord. I'm hearing His voice. I'm having good fellowship with others. I'm using my gifts and honoring Him in that. I'm putting to death the desires of my flesh and living according to the Spirit. You're doing what you need to be doing spiritually and you're humming along Well, don't let your guard down because somewhere along your path, folly is likely going to make her appeal. Her appeal that you might step off the path. And so she'll call out and she'll remind you, well, you're doing doing fine. You could take a morning off. Surely you could take a morning off from your personal devotions. You've been doing devotions every day for six months and look how well you're doing. You can sleep in. Folly will cry out to you. What's that? I think it was Burger King. She'll call out, you deserve a break today. She'll call out to you. She'll try and convince you with this lie. You probably heard it. Well, you know, you're only human. You're only human. I mean, what does God expect? Or, and God will forgive you. Right? You're a Christian. If you confess your sin, he'll forgive you. So go ahead and sin, Folly will say. The Apostle Paul would say the complete opposite. Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? May it never be, he says. But folly will say something else. And so if you're doing great, remain on your guard. Remain diligent in your pursuit of righteousness. Notice we continue to see her tactics. Notice the words that she uses. I found this so interesting when it kind of jumped off the page at me. But notice her tactics. In verse 16, she says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Does that sound familiar? That's the exact phrase that wisdom said. And she says that exact phrase as well. So wisdom said it in verse 4, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 16, verse A, or the first part of the verse, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. She used the exact same words. Why? Because she is a counterfeit, seeking to offer a counterfeit experience. To the simple, she continues crying out. She says, stolen water is sweet. 
and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. True or false? That's true. Sin is pleasurable. Please don't let anyone lie to you and say, well, sin is miserable anyway. No, it typically is pretty awesome. It feels, oh, good, I finally let that person have it I've wanted to for so long. Initially, right? Now, some of you think, oh, I don't know this guy. He's got problems. All right? Sin initially is pleasurable. The Scripture says it is pleasant for a season. You remember when it was writing about Moses in the book of Hebrews? It said that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so if sin weren't pleasurable, none of us would do it. I don't want that, right? We don't eat our Brussels sprouts. Some of you might, you're weird. All right, whole 30 people, maybe. I don't know, is that on there? Probably is. All right, but we don't, we don't do those things we don't want to do. You don't have to convince me. You have to convince me to do those particular things. But the power of sin lies in its pleasure. And if stolen waters were not sweet, no one would steal the waters. And so sin appeals to our inherent appetite. That's why when people will say things like, but it felt so right. And again, there's that stupid song from the 80s or whatever about this couple having an affair. And how could something so wrong, how could it feel so right? Because it's sin. And sin is pleasurable for a season. And nobody is denying that. And so that truth, that sin is going to appeal to my inherent appetite for pleasure, that truth, that reality should give each of us pause as followers of Christ. We should be aware of that reality. The fact that stolen waters are sweet and that they appeal to our taste buds should cause each of us to just stop and pause. It should concern us. It should concern you and I to know that within each of us is an appetite in our nature which finds a sweetness in sin. And what it should leave us with is, I better be on my guard. That that appetite, I don't give in and satisfy that appetite. And I think it should also doubly make us aware as followers of Christ that while we are in the body, we ever need to be watchful of those sinful appetites and how we feed those sinful appetites. Because what you give rain to, what you start feeding, if you will, that is what will dominate your life. And so if you give rain to your flesh and pleasing your flesh and satisfying the appetites of your flesh and your desires and so on, then that carnal, fleshly nature, those natural desires towards sin, that's what's going to reign in our lives. The more you feed, the more it will reign. And conversely, if we starve our fleshly appetite and instead give reign to the things of the Spirit, then who's going to reign? The Spirit. It's either the flesh or the Spirit that's going to reign in our lives. And the more we feed our flesh, the more its appetite will grow. And the more we, f- we feed the Spirit, so to speak, the things of the Spirit, the more our appetite for those things are going to grow. And so, yes, stolen waters are sweet for a season. And bread eaten secret, that is, you took it and you ran and you hid, it is pleasant. But notice the end thereof. What's it say in verse 18? But he who does not know, but he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Now, if your Bible verse, if your um, version uses quotation marks, one of the things that you will notice is that the quotation marks stop at verse 17. Not all versions use them. 
All right, but if you look at verse 17, quote, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. That's what folly is calling out, close quote. Here's the fine print, which she doesn't include. But he, but he does not know that the dead are there and that the guests uh, are in the depths, her guests are in the depths of Sheol. F- folly conveniently leaves out that fine print that though the waters, yeah, though they be sweet, the end thereof, is they are poisonous waters, ultimately ending in death. And so folly entices, and she entices with her temporary pleasures, failing to tell the full story. She baits the hook, if you will, with the temporary pleasures so that she might hide her true motive. And what's her true motivation? Your destruction. Folly's true motivation is your destruction. And so what does Solomon do as a wise father, He reveals to his son, be very careful, don't go over there. There's a landmine over there. If they were fish, he would say to his son, that's not the real stuff. There's a hook there. Don't let the bait fool you and snag you. Those of us that are wise will will believe Solomon with his son. And we're not going to take chances fooling with sin. And again, often, what do we do? How close can I get without crossing the line? And before you know it, you will have crossed that line. And so this morning, if you're doing great spiritually, and I hope all of us can say that, if you're doing great spiritually, keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes firmly fixed on the Lord. Keep running your race with perseverance. Keep your eyes fixed on heaven. Don't allow the fleeting pleasures of sin to draw you astray. If you're doing well, keep doing well. Keep running your race. Don't be distracted. If you're struggling in your walk, I'm glad you're here. Oftentimes we're struggling in our walk and we're like, well, I can't go to church this week. I did that thing. I said that thing and all of that. No, this is the exact place you should be. You should be in this place to hear the word of God, gather with other sinners, sing these songs of praise, that scripture that Eric read earlier in in the passage today, that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. His compassion fails not. This is where you should be. And so if you're struggling here with sin, you've been finding yourself giving in to the enticements of folly, well, the word of exhortation to you this morning is simply this. Confess that as such. Lord, I've been giving in to folly. I've been giving in to sin. I've been listening to her voice. I've been following after the passing pleasures of sin. Not wisely, unwisely. And then seek the Lord for his cleansing Petition him for his strength. And as you leave here today, determine to walk afresh this week in his mercy and his grace. That's the procedure. Lord, I've sinned. I've blown it this week. Would you strengthen me? Would you cleanse me first off? But would you strengthen me this week to walk in your mercy and grace? Do you think that's a prayer he would like to hear? Of course it is. That's a prayer he would love to honor and answer. And so this morning, whether you're doing great or you're struggling, Keep your eyes on the Lord. And if you don't know Jesus, and some of you may not in here, if you don't have a relationship with him, your sins have never been forgiven, that's where it all begins. It has to begin there. And so before you leave here today, talk with the person who brought you. What does it mean for me to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ? And if the person who brought you is like, "Ah, I don't know. I'm sorry, I didn't know that it was a quiz today. Then come see me, and I will share with you, and I'll share with that person too so they know the next time. Okay, my friends? The, word of, the way of wisdom from Proverbs chapter 9. Let's, stay, let's stand, I should say, and we'll pray. 
Now you should know, we have prayer counselors that are available every week, and they, they set themselves right up outside in the hallway on the left or on the right, okay? And certainly we're up front here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to you in prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who ministers to our heart. And Lord, we thank you that as we run this race, we walk this walk of wisdom, from time to time, Lord, you'll speak a word of reproof into our hearts. You'll either do it by your Holy Spirit or through your Holy Spirit through another person. But you do that because you love us. And Lord, you're so kind and you're so gentle, even in your rebukes. And you leave us in this place where, though the words may sting a bit, we know you love us and we know that your words are true. And it spurs us on to walk with you even further. And so, Lord, do the work that you need to do in each of our hearts. Lord, bless us as a congregation of believers that we would really be a group of believers seeking you together, running this race together. Lord, we pray for the lost that are amongst us in our community Lord, we ask that you would increase our love for them so that it might come even a bit closer to the love that you have for them and that we would be burdened to reach the lost. So, Father, use your word this week in our hearts. Bless us as we seek to follow you and walk with you. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.